James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has a great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Holly. Well, this is the last sermon in the James series, which um, I'm sad to say farewell to James, but I'm excited to say hello to Genesis next week. Also terribly nervous about it. (laughs) It's a complicated and big book, but it's God's book, as is this. And when I think about what the Bible is, like this book that we kind of rally around every week, the thing that really stands out the most is that it's his self-revelation to us. God reveals who he is and what he's like and what he does and has done through this book in real time by his spirit. It's the one place we can go to really learn who he is and what he's like. So because of that, we have three commitments that we rally around here at Christ Church. Here they are now. One, we let God set the priorities through the Bible. In other words, we emphasize what the Bible emphasizes, not what we would naturally want to emphasize. Two, we trust the Bible. We just take it straight. And three, We are not afraid of how God might speak to us through the Bible. We're not afraid of him confronting us. We're not afraid of his word upsetting our status quo or challenging us or convicting us of sin. So we let God set the priorities. We trust the Bible and we are not afraid of the Bible. These things, I want these to settle deep into the just heart of this community. It's part of who we are. And I think we can absolutely glorify God with these three commitments. And it's, it's relevant for this week because I, this isn't the first sermon that I wrote on this text this week. The, the previous sermon that I wrote was reflecting the emphasis that I wanted to bring to the text, the priorities that I had. And it wasn't wrong. It wouldn't have been a bad sermon per se, but I wanted to let God set the priorities and put this into practice in real time. So I wrote a sermon on healing But through study and prayer, I found that the primary thing that the Spirit of God inspired James to write about in this passage is prayer. That's what this passage is really about. So uh, let's talk about prayer then. In, In fact, one of the main emphases of the entire letter of James is driving toward prayer. But the, the, one of the main themes that happens all the time is the way that we use our tongues, our mouths. And so far throughout the last four and a half chapters of James, most of the things it has to say about the tongue, about the mouth in the Christian community is negative, or it's a prohibition. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about that and said, 
sometimes you read James, you get the impression, maybe it's just better to not talk at all, slow to speak, or maybe just talk to God. Well, that's pretty much how James ends his letter. So he starts with, you know, the first four and a half chapters, what not to do with our tongues. He says, be slow to speak, bridle your tongues. Don't blame God for your temptations. Don't speak with partiality to rich people for your own advantage. Don't say you have faith when you don't have works. Don't set forest fires ablaze with the spark of your tongue. Don't boast and be false to the truth. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't boast about tomorrow as if you're in control of it. Don't grumble against one another and don't swear in vain oaths. That's a lot of don'ts with the tongue. But now in this one short passage at the end of the letter, he gives us a whole bunch of positive things that we should do with our tongue. Are you suffering? Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing. Are you sick? Call for the elders. And the elders will pray over you. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another and bring back wandering sinners. Those very tongues that once started forest fires now become God's chosen channel for his healing power in this world through prayer. That's incredible. Your mouth is a redemption story. And that's the theme or the thesis, I suppose, of the sermon here this morning, that God has chosen to bring his healing power into the world through your prayers. That's amazing. So in this passage, James gives us uh, five situations and helps us know how to put our faith into action. Remember, that's kind of the heartbeat of James's letter is um, saying you have faith and not living that faith out is just worthless then your faith is not a living faith. It's a dead faith or a no faith at all. So how do we put our faith in Christ in the Lordship of Jesus into action in these five situations? Well, let's start. Number one, the situation is suffering. Suffering and faith. This is from verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I don't think that's how the world would answer that question. Is anyone among you suffering? Um, Get help to get out of the suffering as quickly as you can. James says, pray, go to God. He has spent a lot of time in this letter teaching us about trials and suffering. From James 1, we know that trials and suffering are not punishment from God, but the trials and suffering in our lives are testing of our faith. And by these tests, God is shaping us into a people, into a whole person. God is using your sufferings to make you whole. That's amazing. Lacking in nothing. That's what suffering does for the Christian. So how do we put our faith into action then when we're suffering is we pray. We ask God for the wisdom we need to endure the trial, knowing and remembering that God is generous and gives to all without chiding us. We pray for relief in our suffering. That's okay to do. But we do so in the name of the Lord. That is, we, di- we align our desires to what God wills, not what we will. Remember what we were talking to the kids about a minute ago. God gives you what you would ask for if you were as good and all-knowing as he is. 
So we pray in the name of the Lord for his will. And we pray for the Lord to come back and fix everything. That's what we do in our suffering. We can trust Jesus in our suffering because we know with Paul that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, we don't have to twist God's arm to be good to us. He is good to us even in and perhaps especially through our suffering. So we put that trust into action. We work out our faith in our suffering by prayer. But let's stop for a minute and and ask ourselves then what exactly is prayer? Um, Prayer in the Bible, and you've probably heard me say this before, I'm probably never gonna stop saying it. Prayer in the Bible is not just talking to God. Prayer in the Bible is calling on the name of the Lord to do what he said he would do. Prayer is asking God to act according to his character and according to his promises. So when you are going through something that you cannot square with the character of God, God is inviting you to say, pray that to me. If you are going through, or maybe worse, someone you really love is suffering deeply and you say, Lord, I know you're full of steadfast love and faithfulness, but it doesn't seem like it. You are invited. It's not cheeky to pray to God and say, it doesn't seem like you're full of steadfast love. Will you do that? Will you be that? God loves those prayers. That's what prayer is. So prayer is asking God to act according to his character and his promises. And nowhere does God promise that we won't suffer. Quite the opposite. Jesus said the servant is not greater than the master. And then he went and suffered more than any human in all of history. But God does promise a few things to those in suffering. God gives us checks to cash from his bank of promises so that we have something to pray back to him. He promises to give us wisdom when we ask. Remember James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. He promises to draw near to us when we draw near to him. And he promises to make all our suffering worth it in the end. So are any among you suffering? Ask God to do what he said he would do. Get wisdom, draw near, pray for the Lordship of Christ in his return to set everything right and satisfy you. He will answer those prayers. That's the situation of suffering. Let's go to number two. Um, I'm gonna move quickly through these first two points because the third point is larger. Number two, good cheer and faith. It's from the second half of the same verse, 13. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. All right, so the, the word cheerful, I translated as good cheer here. The word in Greek is euthymeo. Euthymeo means good passion. It's the same word that Paul uses in Acts to encourage sailors on a ship in the midst of a violent storm. So bluebird singing on your shoulder, that kind of cheerfulness, get that out of your mind. That's not what, Paul, that's not what James is talking about. And it's not what Paul's talking about when he uses that word, euthymeo. So Paul's on a ship, bunch of sailors, a horrible violent storm comes in. It looks like everyone is going to die. And Paul says in, uh, in Acts 
can't remember where, Acts somewhere. He says, I urge you to euthymeo, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So James is not saying pray in hard times, sing in good times. He's saying something way better. James says, you can euthymeo, you can be of good cheer in the midst of the storm. That is possible with Jesus. The Lord can help you take heart. He can lift your head under the worst trials. And when he does, sing like it. When we pray in our suffering, the Lord helps us to become cheerful. That's what happens. He helps us take heart. And so we give our prayers melody in response. In 1735, uh, John Wesley was on a ship crossing the Atlantic with a bunch of Moravian sailors. These Moravians were Christians from Germany who had been studying with Count von Zinzendorf, which I just said the name because I like saying the name, Count von Zinzendorf. And it was a, a wonderful community that had experienced recently um, a small-scale revival. And so Wesley is on the ship and Wesley's a pastor at this point and a massive storm rolls in in the midst of a prayer service that the Moravians were holding. So the, these Moravian Christians are standing there on the deck, worshiping God, singing and praying. Storm rolls in and they just keep doing it while everyone else is screaming in terror. I mean, everyone thought this is it, we are all going to die. And the Moravians sang fearlessly. And it was their fearless faith put to song in the midst of the storm that ultimately led John Wesley to realize that he wasn't even a Christian, though he was a pastor. And he eventually humbled himself before the Lord and asked for that kind of faith, the kind that can sing in a storm. And the Lord answered his prayer. That storm led to John Wesley's conversion and thus was a major factor in the first great awakening. So when the Lord lifts your head in the midst of your suffering, the response of faith is to sing your prayers back to him. And that kind of faith, it might just change the world. It wouldn't be the first time. It wouldn't be the hundredth time. So that's good cheer and faith. Um, now the, the one that people have been asking me about all week, how are you going to preach this? Number three is sickness and faith. This is the, the situation of sickness. Look at verses 14 and 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So that's the, the third situation is sickness, not just a cold or seasonal allergies, but a sort of debilitating weakness that would keep a person from even being able to attend the regular gathering of Christians. So they had to call for the elders to come to them. That's just a, just a window into the way this was actually applied in James's day. And as an aside, that, that word for sick means weak at its core. It's used of sickness, but it's used of other things as well, including moral weakness by Paul quite a number of times. So we're not limited here to speaking about physical disease and, and illness. Some suffer from anxiety and depression and the like to such an extent that it debilitates them from even being able to come to church or pick up the phone and call a friend or be in community. And James is not excluding these situations either. That's what he means by sick. 
weak, can't do for yourself anymore, needs help. So what would the sick person do? Well, we can assume that since they're suffering, they're also praying for themselves. It's okay to pray for yourself. That's not selfish. Um, That's friendship with God. But now the sick person is told to also enlist the help of the church in intercessory prayer. Intercessory being when we come and stand in the gap and and make an appeal for somebody else, we intercede for them. So the elders of the church come and then they pray for the sick person, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's There's nothing special about the office of elder itself that makes their prayers more effective, just to be clear. Um, We know this for two reasons, at least from this passage. First, because when James points to Elijah as an example of the power of prayer, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he doesn't say, by the way, Elijah was in the office of prophet. So because he was a prophet of God, he had special Access. No, he emphasizes the likeness of Elijah and us, the similarities between us. He's just a dude and he's stubborn like we are and he's selfish like we are and he's weak and tired and all the things. So that's the first reason. The second reason we know there's nothing special about the elders in regard to healing is from the end of verse 16. He says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That's how he sums up that section not the prayer of an elder, the prayer of a righteous person. The elders are supposed to be the men in the church who have shown themselves to be righteous. That's what qualifies them for the office. Read 1 Timothy 3 or Titus chapter 1 to see the qualifications of elders are pretty basic, actually. Love God faithfully. Love your family well. Don't be drunk. They're pretty basic Christian standards. And they should be true of all of us, not just the elders. And so the ministry of intercessory prayer is not limited to the eldership, just to be clear, quite the opposite. It is a ministry entrusted to the hands of all who practice righteousness, men and women. Earlier, James said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, visiting widows and orphans in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what righteousness looks like. James isn't talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ that we receive in the gospel in our salvation. That's not what he's talking about. When we are made righteous by faith in God, God counts us as righteous with the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now we're free to actually do righteousness. Now we can actually go and live like that's true. The process of the Christian life is just becoming more who you actually are in Christ until Christ returns. So with that kind of righteousness in mind, let's, you know, pure and undefiled religion, that kind of righteousness, visiting widows and orphans. Let's think about Elijah's story. Since James pulls Elijah in, it's the biggest example from the Old Testament that James uses in the whole book. So let's think about Elijah. Elijah comes into the scene in something of a whirlwind uh, in 1 Kings 17 and leaves the scene literally in a whirlwind later, um, we find that, (laughs) what? All right, cool. Uh, So 1 Kings 17, uh, Ahab uh, is, is the king who has led the people of God horribly astray from the right worship of God. And now they're worshiping this other regional deity called Baal. And 
it's idolatry. And, and they, they've replaced the worship places of Yahweh with altars for, for Baal. And Elijah, instead of letting himself um, be stained by the world, as James would say, he stands against this idolatry. And so he goes to Ahab and he announces that there will be a three-year drought with the purpose of turning the hearts of Israel back to God and away from Baal. He's seeking the restoration of a people who have wandered, like at the end of James 5. So in the middle of this drought season, where does Elijah go? He goes to a widow and an orphan. Fancy that. It's almost like James planned this. (laughs) And he stays with the widow of Zarephath and her son. And he shows them the generosity of God by the flour and the oil that miraculously by God's provision never run out. Remember, he he comes to her and says, I'm hungry, can I have some bread? And she said, look, I've got enough for one last meal. My son and I were gonna eat this and die. And Elijah says, your oil will never run out because of the generosity of God. And then he stays with them and provides for them and they eat together, et cetera. Um, But now the widow's son, this orphan who has lost the sole means of provision, which is what the father was in those days, he dies. And Elijah prays fervently to God and the boy's raised back to life. Visiting widows and orphans in their affliction is precisely what Elijah was doing. And James knows precisely what he's doing by talking about Elijah now. Elijah was putting his faith in God into action with pure and undefiled religion before God. He was doing righteousness. And when he prayed, God heard his prayer. God listens to his people's prayers when they do righteousness. Is that counterintuitive to you? It almost feels weird to say, but it's what the Bible says very clearly. We're not afraid of the Bible. Let's contrast that then with Isaiah. Um, Israel in Isaiah's day, this is hundreds of years after Elijah. Isaiah chapter one, he's talking to the people of Judah who are very religious outwardly, but not putting their faith into action at all. So this is Isaiah 1, uh, 15 through 17. God says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. If you say that you have faith, but defy God by not putting it into action, the Bible says he will not hear your prayers. That's a sobering reality. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. But if you have a living faith, if you are righteous, not perfect, we're not talking about moral perfection. We're talking about going to people in need and helping them. We're talking about caring about justice, caring about mercy, showing love. If you are righteous, God says, I will hear, heal, I will hear your prayers. I will raise him up and I will forgive sins. That's incredible. So let's put all this together then. How do we at Christ Church put into 
action our faith, put our faith into action when someone has a debilitating weakness or sickness. Um, let's say one of you becomes really sick and you can't even muster the strength to get to church. Well, you can call me, text me, email me, call Nathan, text, etc., uh, and we will come to you. I will gather faithful, righteous people from Christ Church and we will come to you and we will pray over you. And we will ask God to do what he said he would do. Namely, we'll pray over you and believe God when he says that he heals our infirmities. Believe God when he says, by his wounds, we are healed. And we'll pray in the name of the Lord, which means asking for his will to be done and his power to be unleashed. Not our will, not our power. I'm not a healer, right? I just teach the Bible. God's power comes through our prayers into this world. And if it's his will to give you a foretaste of the resurrection by restoring your health by miracle or by medicine, we will glorify God and praise and thank him for his faithfulness to answer our prayers. And we won't be surprised. And if it is his will to test your faith and make you whole and perfect through your suffering in this life, then we will trust him to heal you completely in his good time. All Christians will be healed completely. It's just a matter of when. And if that's the case, we'll praise God and give him all the glory. Either way. Um, I'll bring oil with me because it says to. And I will anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Not because there's any magic in it or because we're trying to be, all, you know, ceremonial or overly religious. Thank you, William. But because oil is a symbol of the favor of God. It's a physical, tangible symbol of the generosity of God, like that widow's oil that never ran out. And it physically reminds us that you are set aside, you're consecrated to God for prayer. So the anointing oil is a physical way of saying God loves you. God has poured out his generosity on you, even now, and you belong to God. It's the oil of gladness. When someone is sick or suffering or mourning in the Old Testament, they put sackcloth and ashes. They literally dump ashes on their head, right? If the word of the Lord then comes to them and, and a, you know, a prophet comes and says, the Lord is compassionate and merciful and he is your God and he's going to restore you and everything's gonna be okay. The sick person gets up, cleans off the ashes and anoints their heads with oil because it's the oil of gladness. It points to the generosity of God. So verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith. Now I wanna be really clear that throughout James and throughout all the Bible, the object of our faith is Christ, which means that the, faith, the prayer of faith isn't a prayer that's very certain of a specific outcome, right? If I pray really believing that you will be healed right now of your disease. And the object of my faith is the desired result. That's not the prayer of faith that James is talking about. The object of our faith is in the Lord Jesus. He's who we believe. He is who we lean on. We pray in the name of the Lord, his will and his power. So we don't pray saying that we have faith that God will do exactly what we want him to. We don't get to twist God's arm. We get to rest in his arms. Like we talked to the kids 
He'll give you what you would ask for if you were as good and all-knowing as he is. So we believe in Jesus that all Christians will be fully and finally healed. And we believe that he often wills that by miracle or medicine, we get a taste of that final healing and deliverance now in this life. Uh, and we remember that the, um, so it says that the prayer of faith will save or deliver the sick person. So does that mean that you save somebody? Does that mean that you, well, no, then it says the Lord will raise him up. So we remember that the prayer of faith delivers, but it's Jesus who raises the sick person up. Now, that sounds like resurrection language, not getting up from your sickbed language. But that's because when the New Testament writers and when Christ himself started talking about the resurrection, they went to the, to the image of someone getting up off a sickbed. The word raise up in Greek originally meant just standing up from a lying down position. So don't, don't think first and foremost resurrection. In Matthew 9, 25, this same word for raise him up is used. It says, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in, uh, so this, this little girl had died and there's um, mourners and flute players playing a dirge and all that outside for her and wailing. And he dismisses them all. He says, no, no, she's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. But he goes to this dead girl and it says, he took her by the hand and the girl arose. In other words, the girl was raised up. The resurrection is the beautiful picture of Jesus reaching into our grave like that little girl and raising us up but never to lie down in death again. And God has decided in his wisdom that your faith-filled prayers will be the means of delivering the sick brother or sister. And through your prayers, the Lord Jesus himself will reach down and take them by the hand and he will raise them up. We get to be a part of that. That's amazing. All right, that's the third situation. Two more, okay? Number four is sin and faith. Now, James moves seamlessly from sickness to sin because sickness and sin are like each other, biblically. Sickness and sin both entered the world in Genesis 3. And both sin and sickness will be eradicated completely when the Lord returns. Jesus is committed to healing his people from both sickness and sin. They're like each other. Look at the healing language when James talks about sin from verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So sin is like sickness. It's something we need to be healed from. Do you think of sin that way? We need to repent of our sins, turning from them to God. We need to mourn our sins. We also need him to heal us from our sins. And the way that the Lord brings that promise into reality, into our reality, is through confession and prayer. That's how God designed this to work. Notice the therefore in verse 16. What is the therefore, therefore? The command to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other is based on a promise. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. He will be, not might be. 
So because God promises to forgive the sins of his people who confess, therefore we confess our sins to one another and pray so that we might be healed. Just like sickness, God has ordained that our prayers for each other will be the channels of God's healing power. There are brothers and sisters in your life who have, they mourn their sin, they're seeking to turn from their sin to God, but they need to be healed from their sin. And Jesus will use you to do that when you pray for them. It's amazing. So at Christ Church, we are committed to confessing our sins to one another. It's not weird, it's Christian. It's God's command to us and his chosen way for us to be healed. Why wouldn't we do it? Now, how is it that the Lord can promise that confessed sins will be forgiven sins? Because that forgiveness has already been bought on the cross by the blood of Christ. In the Old Testament, there's pretty much a sacrifice for everything. And in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, those who belong to Christ can know for certain that no matter what sin they commit, there's a sacrifice for that. It's not gonna be sheeps and goats and pigeons and turtle doves. It's Christ, the all-sufficient sacrifice for his people. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, your sins have been punished in the body of another person. That's why Paul says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then shame and guilt is not your present reality anymore. It's a steady flow of free forgiveness from the Lord Jesus. So we can go to him, confess our sins, knowing that he's not surprised and he's not furious and he's not going to punish us. And then we get the privilege of experiencing his healing that he bought with his blood on the cross through our prayers for one another. That's awesome. Number five, this is the last one, restoration and faith. Let's consider James's conclusion in verses 19 to 20. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So using our tongues under the lordship of Jesus by faith has been the answer, of course, to all the previous situations that we've talked about, the last four, and it's no different here. The implication uh, is that we both pray for the person who is wandering. Like in 1 John, John says, if you see a brother or sister in sin, pray for them. That's step one. That's the, the first implication. The second is that we speak to them in such a way as to seek their restoration. It's a thing we do with our mouths, restoring people. And the word wandering here is, is actually a passive verb, not an active verb. A passive verb is something that's done to you, not something that you do, right? So it's a it's passive verb, but the emphasis is not on who led them astray, not who made you wander. The emphasis is on the idea that you didn't know that you were straying from the truth. The reality is in any Christian community, some will unknowingly start believing and living in a way that does not keep in step with the gospel of Jesus. The apostle Peter did. We're going to. 
And it's like sickness, not of the body or of the soul, but of the mind. Because we're not trying to rebel against Jesus and go our own way, but we wake up one day and find that we've wandered from the flock. We need restoration. And Jesus uses this same word for wander or go astray or gone astray as it's translated here in Matthew 18, starting in verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If someone in our community wanders from the truth, we dare not think good riddance. That is to be astray and to be far from the shepherd himself. And we dare not think that we are the police of the Christian faith. It's not our job to safeguard the church from any possible error or wrongdoing by constantly poking and pointing out every little sin or error that will just destroy us from the inside. The reality is it doesn't hinge on you and it doesn't hinge on me. The Lord will build his church. The Lord will watch over his city. It belongs to him. And if you see a sheep that has gone astray, here's the beautiful truth that James is teaching us. The wandering sheep will hear the voice of the good shepherd through your voice. Jesus uses your prayers and your words to save them from death. He uses your voice to call them back to the truth. Which means that when we use our voice to call back the lost sheep, we must speak like the shepherd speaks. There is no place for harsh criticism or being judgmental or being holier than thou. We have to call our brothers and sisters back to the truth with gentleness and love and with relentless determination. Gentleness and determination. Listen to the words of Isaiah 42, verses three to four. He's speaking, Isaiah is speaking about the coming Messiah, about Jesus himself. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Do you hear the gentleness in that? Do you hear the determination in that? Isaiah is saying, he's so tender as to not cause you any harm or pain but he's so strong and so determined that he will never stop bringing justice to this world until it's perfect. Gentleness and relentless determination are the qualities of the voice of the good shepherd. And they must be the qualities of our voice when we seek to restore the lost. Now, I hope in all uh, this whole passage that we've read, I hope you didn't miss the promises. I love a good promise in the Bible. It's fuel for our prayer. We just covered five situations that require prayer, but nestled in those five situations are three promises. We'll end with this. Promise number one, the prayer of faith 
will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Promise language. Promise number two, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Promise number three, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The Lord has made some promises to his people, people who belong to him, and they're incredible promises. Actually, they're credible promises. <laughs> English. And the Lord has chosen to use your mouth to be the channel of that kind of healing power and bringing those promises to reality in this world. I can hardly believe it, but let's dare to believe it together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your gentleness. As a, um, as a personal bruised reed, I, I'm so thankful for your gentle touch. Um, the way that you tenderly care for your sheep is unbelievable. And we thank you for your determination. You set your face like flint to the cross for us. You loved us to the end. We praise you and we love you back.